Welcome to season three of Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast. In our first episode this season, we're talking about deferred prosecution agreements, also known as remediation agreements. Yes, those agreements, the ones that are now synonymous with the considerable political scandal that came to light in 2019 regarding Canada's Prime Minister applying undue pressure to the Attorney General's office to work out a deferred prosecution agreement with a major international engineering firm based in Canada, or so said a report from the Ethics Commissioner's office. Deferred prosecution agreements are meant to encourage good corporate citizenship. They require companies accused of misconduct, like bribery or corruption, to commit to improving their practices, among other things, in exchange for avoiding a criminal prosecution. Given the public interest impacts of such a bargain, the process of negotiating a DPA is complex and delicate, with significant implications for future litigation. To help us wade through the policy and process behind the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, we have two guests who could not be better versed in the area. Francois Fontaine is a senior litigation partner in Norton Rose's Montreal office. While Francois practices in all areas of commercial litigation, he has a particular specialty in cases involving corruption, corporate misconduct, and white-collar crime. His practice often engages bet-the-bank issues and corporate crisis management at the highest levels. Charles-Antoine Pelladeau is of counsel in our Montreal office. His litigation practice involves internal investigations and advising clients on compliance with the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act, the Competition Act, the Criminal Code, and similar legislation. In relation to such matters, he interacts with the RCMP and the Public Prosecution Service of Canada, as well as other enforcement authorities. And critically, together, Francois and Charles-Antoine negotiated the first ever deferred prosecution agreement in Canada. We greatly enjoyed our discussion with them, and we hope you will as well. Welcome to Season 3. Charles-Antoine, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, to start off with some basics, can you explain the concept of a remediation agreement and what is the regime intended to achieve? Essentially, uh, a remediation agreement is an agreement between the Crown prosecutors and uh, an accused corporation by which the prosecutor agree to stay the, the, the charges against an accused if certain conditions are met. The objective of the remediation agreement regime are provided for by uh, the criminal code, and they're essentially threefold. So to held corporation accountable for um, their, their action, their uh, reprehensible action, to uh, uh, favor self-disclosure of wrongdoing, and uh, the third one, to um, avoid or diminish negative impact on innocent third party, for example, uh, shareholder, uh, employee, uh, pension plan, etc. And Francois, what is the difference between a remediation agreement and a company pleading guilty and reaching a resolution with the prosecutor through that guilty plea? Well, when you get a remediation agreement, you will not plead guilty. The remediation agreement allows you to avoid conviction because you are charged, the charges are stayed, 
uh, or suspended uh, until you uh, demonstrate that you have uh, fulfilled all the obligation of the agreement. And once that is done, then the charges are dropped. So charges are laid, charges are stayed, charges are dropped, but you never plead guilty. You're never you are you are never convicted as a as a company, and you are you're not found guilty. So you're not a director of a company who was found guilty. You're not a company who was found guilty. Uh, that's it. the difference, of course, is if you plead guilty, you have a guilty plea registered on certain type of offenses, and depending on the type of offenses, you can be prevented from bidding on public contracts if you're. If you if you have public contracts in your portfolio, so the remediation agreements is a tool to permit corporations to bid on public contracts to get public contracts in spite of past practices uh, which are no longer tolerated, no longer accepted, and which have been criminalized over over time. Uh, uh, so essentially, it is a way to to, to clean yourself, it is a way to become compliant, to uh, uh, move forward with your journey uh, without having a criminal conviction in your backyard. And just briefly, what can you tell us about the context of remediation agreements and the historical background in which the Canadian regime has developed? Let's start saying that this tool uh, uh, available to prosecutors um, exist in the United States for decades and and was introduced in the UK in 2014, if I'm correct. correct. So we're not the – and it was introduced in other jurisdictions or discussed in other jurisdictions since probably uh, 2010 onwards. So it is a tool existing in the US for a long time. It is a tool – that is being uh, now in the UK and discussed in other uh, occidental jurisdiction. Uh, uh, and, and of course, Canada uh, is part of it and went forward with the legislation in 2018. Yeah, it's in 2018 with the, the, the modification to the criminal code were included in the Budget Implementing, <clears throat> Implementation Act. And as of today, uh, only one remediation agreement uh, have been approved uh, in Canada. It's the the one in the SNC-Lavalin uh, case earlier this year. And uh, currently, there's a, another one that is before uh, the Superior Court of Quebec. It's the remediation agreement in the ultra-forensic electronic matter. But the, as of today, no, no decision, to my knowledge, was rendered on the uh, approval of the remediation agreement in that specific matter. Okay, so Charles Antoine, you mentioned that there's been uh, just two decisions by the Canadian courts uh, concerning the remediation agreement regime since it became part of the criminal code in 2018. One of those is obviously the SNC-Lavalin case. And I think the other you mentioned is called Ultra Electronics. I'm just wondering, both of those decisions have been in the Quebec courts. Has there been any instance that you're aware of of uh, any of the other provinces dealing with the considering the remediation agreement regime? Uh, we we don't we're not aware of all the existing uh, investigation, of course, in the country about uh, uh, behavior that would be captured by uh, on the list of potential remediation agreement. Uh, of course, what we know is that there were, uh, in in terms of, for example, corruption, uh, we know that two 
cases were settled in Alberta uh, at the, I don't remember exactly the date, 2011, 2010, or 2009, in Nico Resources and Griffith. Uh, and of course, in 2015, which is before the introduction of the remediation agreement and the legislation, SNC-Lavalin was criminally charged as a company uh, before the Quebec courts for corruption and, and fraud uh, in Libya. And, and we know the story. They were denied a remediation agreement after the regime was implemented in the criminal code. So this is not the case that went on this year and for which they obtained a remediation agreement. This one was settled in 2019, in December 2019. What can you tell us about the incentives for the prosecutors to enter into these types of agreements? What do they have in it that makes this worthwhile for them, other than maybe saving time and expense? Well, this is already a big, a, big, a big incentive, saving time and expenses, because as you can imagine, uh, fraud cases or, you know, financial cases, financial crimes, uh, investigations are long, costly, uh, trial are long and costly also. It's, it takes a lot of resources, uh, expert witnesses, expert resources. So I think the incentive, of course, is, is to, to save money. The other incentive is, is to create this field where you have uh, uh, accountable companies who can do their own compliance. Uh, the hope is that when companies have, are facing compliance issues, they will investigate them themselves. And whatever the result is, they will resolve the issue. They will bring the matter to the authorities and say, we found this. Uh, we believe it's important. It, it is to promote self-disclosure. It's one of the goals of remediation agreement. It's to change the way of doing business and the culture that was existing uh, in the past. So for the judicial system, it means less resources, less cases, more time to be devoted to other matters, uh, etc. So I think that's where the, the, the incentives, in my view, for the prosecutors is a question of resources and a question of having the assistance of the company in the investigation, essentially. Yeah, and if I can add to that, I think it's also important to consider uh, the role of prosecutor in our judicial system. Prosecutor have to act towards achieving public interest, and public interest is a big part of the remediation agreement regime. And in some cases, it's going to be in the public interest to negotiate a remediation agreement because we want to avoid, as I mentioned earlier, negative consequences on innocent third party. Mm-hmm. So, okay, as you, so it's a huge expense uh, saving potentially for the prosecutor by entering into a remediation agreement. And as you mentioned, Charles Antoine, um, there may be many instances where it is genuinely in the public interest to negotiate a remediation agreement as opposed to go ahead with a full trial and securing a criminal conviction. And that notion of uh, the public interest and what constitutes the public interest is something that um, we do want to unpack a little later. But for the next question that we have, can you talk us through um, the steps of negotiating a remediation agreement? So a corporation suspects that financial misconduct has occurred there is perhaps a willingness to self-disclose to the prosecutor or the RCMP. What steps does the prosecutor then follow to open negotiations for a remediation agreement? 
Well, a, a, you identify one way of approaching it, which is it's not the RCMP or the authorities knocking at the door. If as a company, and I would say particularly a public company, you have an allegation, sometimes it starts in the media, sometimes it starts with a whistleblower. You have something serious about a bad behavior, being corruption, fraud, money laundering, or what have you. As a, as, as a, as a responsible company, normally you have to investigate those facts. And of course, you're, you, you must have an independent investigation, I would say generally done by, by external counsel. And if the results are conclusive, or even when they're not conclusive, but you, you, you see a certain number of red flags for which you would need the assistance of the authorities' powers uh, to investigate further, then you self-disclose to the authorities. When you self-disclose, you have no guarantee that you will get a remediation agreement and that you will be invited to negotiate. And that's, that's the problem. It's always the balancing between, am I shooting myself in the foot by self-disclosing, or am I, on the contrary, securing a remediation agreement? And you have to balance between the two. We know that in 2022, the RCMP is kind of advertising self-disclosure without guaranteeing, and with, they cannot guarantee. But, of course, the, 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 the method is quite clear that if you are proactive, if you self-disclose, if you cooperate with us, um, you're on the right path to be invited to negotiate a remediation agreement. But the terms will be, of course, will vary from one case to another. And, and it depends that the negotiation and the terms will depend on the, on the, on the, on the case itself. So there's no guarantee if you self-disclose that you will be invited to negotiate. That's interesting. So it's entirely the prosecutor's discretion whether they invite you to negotiate a remediation agreement. So it's a very delicate risk assessment that you presumably are going to want experienced counsel to help you make that decision. And is there any scope at all for challenging any decision by the prosecutor not to invite a negotiation? Yeah, but it's not impossible to challenge, but if you want to challenge it, the threshold is uh, very, very high. And normally it will be in case of uh, bad faith on the part of the prosecution or uh, similar conduct. It's almost impossible to challenge. It's really, unless the discretion is exercised in, a, a, in bad faith, uh, the ch you, you have no chance of having a court uh, overruling a, a prosecutorial decision. I mean, it's in my view, it's quite impossible. And you run the risk of trying, in trying, that you're just going to draw a whole lot more attention to whatever it is that you've done or are said to have done as a company, kind of fan the flames of a story that's sort of half the battle in these circumstances, right? I mean, a lot of this has to do with publicity about trying to turn a very bad story into an only so bad story and and making it about how the government isn't willing to negotiate a deal with you kind of reframes the narrative in the wrong way, I would think. It makes it a very risky challenge. Yeah, and it can also place some pressure on the authorities. We saw that again, as I said, uh, with the first SNC case, the prosecutor denied, and it turned to be a political scandal. At the end of the, at the, end of the day, we were not involved in that part. Um, but you're right. Uh, but, but again, you know, I, I, it, it's not impossible to have 
uh, unreasonable prosecutors or unreasonable uh, counterpart on the other side. And uh, it sounds cliche, but it takes two to tango. And if they don't want to dance on a music that makes sense, uh, sometimes you have no choice. Not, not. I mean, but the question is, you cannot, you should not be challenging the decision not to invite, but you should probably, in the context of your defense, when you when you get charged, explain that you have done whatever was necessary in order to resolve the matter quickly, uh, it, to 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 save cost to the to the government, etc. So you will have your day in court, and you will be able to tell the court how bad the prosecutor or unreasonable they were. But challenging the prosecutorial decision, uh, the threshold is so high that it's almost impossible. Okay, so if you self-disclose and the prosecutor decides not to invite not to invite you to negotiate a remediation agreement. You don't challenge that decision in itself necessarily, but you keep it in mind when it comes to the company's defence at trial. Charles Antoine, you mentioned earlier that this decision by the prosecutor is based on what is in the public interest, whether it's in the public interest to negotiate a remediation agreement or pursue a prosecution. Can you outline for us um, what is meant by the public interest in that context? So public interest is it's very large. The criminal code provides for certain factor that a prosecutor uh, must uh, consider uh, when uh, in order to determine if it's in the public interest to, to invite uh, a corporation to negotiate a, a remediation agreement. For example, um, the, the circumstances of the offense are one of the factors, the nature and gravity of the offense are another one, uh, whether or not um, the corporation uh, already uh, made reparation to the victim of the offense, it's another one. So there's a list in the criminal code, but it's not an exhaustive list. So uh, a lot of factors uh, may be, may be uh, taken into consideration when it's time for the prosecutor to determine if it's in the public interest or not to to invite a, a corporation to negotiate? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I would say, of course, it's a, it's a very uh, vague and at the same time precise concept. You know, what is in public interest is, is maybe more difficult to define than it is to recognize. Uh, so sometimes it will be clearly in the public interest to save jobs. It will be clearly in the public interest to appreciate the fact that the company uh, is being investigated for actions that took place long ago and that the company has evolved and has changed and it's known that the company is no longer the same. Um, but on the contrary, on the, on the other side, you can imagine a company completely denying any wrongdoing when it's obvious that there was some a wrongdoing going on. Uh, and then the prosecutor may believe that it's not in the public interest to let a company continue on, 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 on the same journey without charging and without facing trial and conviction. But it should not be considered as it's too big to fail. We, we saw big companies falling down and deserving it. You know, when the company is, and I will not give name, you can remember in the past, our, 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 the, the entire company is, is a fraud itself. Some certain mining companies which existed in the past were totally fraudulent because they pretended they had resources that they didn't have. You know, you cannot let, let it go. You cannot let it continue if it 
rotten, you know, to the end. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if a, if a large company that perhaps does have uh, certain questionable elements, it still employs a lot of people. There is uh, significant shareholders that could be affected by a conviction or there's a uh, key suppliers or other contracts in place, basically innocent third parties, then perhaps it is more in the public interest to negotiate something other than a criminal conviction, right? You did mention earlier that each agreement itself is going to be fact-specific, but there are some mandatory elements that the criminal code requires are in a remediation agreement. Can you talk us through what terms must be in a remediation agreement for the court to approve it? There are two main elements that are mandatory. There, uh, the portion that touch on the statement of fact and uh, the uh, acknowledgement of responsibility uh, by the corporation for the wrongdoing. So uh, those elements are mandatory elements of a remediation agreement. And the other aspect are the financial elements. And there's uh, four uh, subtypes of financial elements. Uh, first, there's a, a penalty. Uh, there's a confiscation of any uh, crime proceed. Uh, there's uh, the reparation to uh, the victim. And uh, finally, there's uh, the uh, victim surcharge, which is uh, a mandatory uh, charge provided for by the, the criminal code. So those are uh, the main uh, mandatory element of remediation agreement. Mm -hmm. And just to focus in on uh, two of the mandatory elements that I think are really interesting there. So the statement of facts and the acknowledgement of responsibility. I'm wondering uh, what liability risk is created, particularly by that acknowledgement? You know, when it comes to um, perhaps related civil proceedings or even related uh, criminal regulatory proceedings rising out of the same or similar facts, is there a liability risk presented by what is essentially a public acknowledgement of responsibility by the corporation? Excellent question. Uh, with respect to civil proceeding, if civil proceeding are ongoing and the uh, statute of limitation have not, uh, um, not reached the point where the, the, the action is time bar, the acknowledgement of responsibility can be used in civil proceeding if the uh, remediation agreement was ultimately approved. If it's not approved, uh, even though it may be, it may be exist in the, the court record, uh, it cannot be used in uh, other criminal or civil or regulatory proceedings. The rule is, is pretty clear. Once the remediation agreement is approved, uh, the statement of fact and the uh, admission it contained can be used in other proceedings. It's in the code, yeah. It's it's in the criminal code. Uh, you cannot deny the facts that you have recognized in order to get the remediation agreement. So mm -hmm. the facts are there, they are admitted, they are public, and they can be relied on by by anyone who needs to rely on it. So that's one aspect of, you know, that is a consideration when you are discussing the statement of facts. Uh, and that's why sometimes choice of words is very important. Uh, and, and it's so it is one aspect, one very important aspect of the discussion when you negotiate the agreement. You must make sure as counsel for the company that you are exposing the company 
elsewhere as less as possible, or not at all if, if possible. But the fact is that if you get to terms and you get a remediation agreement, the facts that are in the statement of facts to be approved by the court are public and can be used against you. And the likelihood that any case that's being any case that's the subject of a negotiation of a deferred prosecution agreement um, is it's very high likelihood that it's going to be linked to a class action for something, um, because if it's a big enough company that it's drawn this kind of interest from a prosecutor, then then other people are going to have an interest in it, too. So it's obviously critical to make sure that clients know that that this is going to follow them potentially into those civil proceedings, notwithstanding the benefits that you're going to get from from negotiating it here. So uh, before we move on to the next stage in the process, which is uh, when the prosecutor applies to the court for approval of a remediation agreement, I think this is just a good time to ask you about the contrast between Canada's regime and the different approaches that are taken in the UK and the US. Uh, because the US, uh, their concept of a deferred prosecution agreement, as it's known, that's existed for several decades. And uh, I think the UK equivalent was introduced in 2014. Now, the Canadian regime was based more on the UK model, but it, it kind of sits halfway between the US and the UK regimes. So, Francois, what can you tell us about some of the key differences between these jurisdictions' approach to remediation agreements? As you know, in the U.S., uh, it, there is no court supervision. So it's really a, not only a prerogative of the prosecutor, but the prosecutor and the investigative team will decide. Uh, and, and they will investigate allegations. And in the context of the investigation, they will seek the cooperation of the company. And... If the company cooperates and is in good standing of cooperation, the company can get to terms eventually with the prosecutor and with the Department of Justice about a different prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement. This is, uh, uh, and, and there is no court scrutiny. It's purely, of course, they will apply the, the sentence guidelines, etc. but it's purely between the prosecutor and the company. And and they expect, of course, companies to self-disclose. But if there is no self-disclosure, you will be able to get a deferred prosecution agreement, nonetheless, if you are in good st cooperation standing. In the UK, uh, I think they started on the same foot as we did in Canada, expecting self-disclosure. And the first case that was decided, uh, uh, first DPA, uh, 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 approved by the court in the UK is the Rolls-Royce case. And in the Rolls-Royce case, of course, there was no self-disclosure. But a company shown what they described as extraordinary cooperation, and that extraordinary cooperation uh, entitled them to get the deferred prosecution agreement, uh, and, and the court approved the, 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 the DPA uh, of Rolls-Royce. Okay, so what you're saying there is um, in the UK regime, there's no need to self-disclose. Extraordinary cooperation by um, the organization will assist in that process. So you mentioned earlier, Charles Antoine mentioned earlier, that the um, SNC-Lavalin case was the first decision by a Canadian court to consider the Canadian remediation agreement regime. What can you tell us about the key points 
in that decision of uh, Justice Downs in the SNC leveling case? In Canada, with the SNC case that we, the judgment we got this year, it's the same thing now. Self-disclosure is what is, uh, is one of the goals, but it's not because you did not self-disclose immediately that you will be prevented from getting a remediation agreement. That's what Judge Downs is saying. Uh, uh, and, and of course, it will require a high level of cooperation with the investigation of the authorities, but it's not, it, it, it does, it, it's not because you will not have self-disclosed in the first place that you will be, that you will, cannot be invited and that it's unreasonable or not in public interest to invite you. Of course, if you self-disclose, public interest is, is even greater, or even greater because you are yourself saying, maybe we did something wrong. But if you do not self-disclose, you can still get a remediation agreement in Canada. The other aspect, in the U.S., you have a prosecutor involved early on. In Canada, and to, from my experience in the U.K. sometimes as well, you have the authorities investigating. And, and as you know, in our system, technically, as we say, we, you have to be charged in order to be invited. So how can you avoid being charged or how can you be charged and, and, and at the same time you're charged come with a settlement if you have not been invited before? In our SNC case, we were charged. We had an invitation to negotiate the same day we were charged, and we started negotiating from that point on. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. In the UK, in the US, you start discussing with the prosecutor the first day the investigation is known. <laughs> Uh, or at least the prosecutor will get involved at, at, at an early stage so you can come to the court with having discussed with the prosecutor already. In Canada, with the system in the criminal code, with our criminal code, it doesn't work because normally you should be invited after you're charged. And this, these, these are real issues that the, the criminal code will have to address eventually because the system is a bit uh, uh, tricky in that regard. Maybe you can take us through the next step after you've got a prosecutor and a would-be defendant who've agreed on the terms for a remediation agreement. They've got that agreement, uh, those terms set between them. Take us through the court approval process and, and what the concerns and considerations are. Yeah, so um, essentially once there's an agreement uh, that that is reached between the prosecutor and uh, the corporation, the next step is for uh, the prosecutor to file a, a motion for the approval of the, the remediation agreement with the court. And uh, at that stage, the hearing on the approval of uh, a remediation agreement is public, and uh, the court uh, will uh, approve uh, or not the remediation agreement if uh, it is of the opinion that, first of all, all uh, the mandatory uh, uh, content is provided for in the remediation agreement, uh, that uh, the agreement is in uh, the public interest. So you, you see that public interest is considered at two stage. First of all, by the prosecutor when determining whether or not to invite uh, a corporation, and then afterwards at the uh, approval stage by the court. And third condition that the, the court will uh, consider is whether or not the uh, term of the agreement are uh, fair and proportionate to the, the gravity of the offense. 
and the the threshold of of review uh, of the court at this stage uh, is similar uh, to the one when a joint recommendation is made uh, on uh, a sentence following a guilty plea. And uh, Justice Down in the SNC-Lavalin uh, matter uh, gave uh, some guidance on this specific element and um, mentioned that uh, while uh, reviewing whether or not uh, the condition of the criminal code are met, the court must show deference to the agreement that was reached uh, between the corporation and uh, the accused. Okay, so if the court, uh, as you know, Charles Antoine, if the court will show considerable deference to the remediation agreement that has been reached, um, to what extent is the court approval stage simply a rubber stamping process? But you still have, it's still uncertain. I mean, and I would say the train can derail uh, along the way up to the end. Uh, As we say, we never know what can happen. Uh, So I think the message to to the client and the message here is um, the judge will show a lot of high level of deference to the to the agreement and to the parties, but uh, if unknown facts come to light between the moment the motion is presented and the moment the motion is heard, um, that can be a game changer uh, completely. Uh, so. Uh, it's not 100% sure and it's not rubber stamping. Uh, when you get to terms, normally if the prosecutor and counsel for the company did their job, you should have a, an inter- a, a range agreement which is in the interest of in the public interest and serves justice, etc. But again, at the end of the day, the judge may disagree or may see things differently or, or have questions that will, that will change the uh, the remediation agreement or that will change what is ready, the court is ready to approve or not. And that is a very interesting point, actually, to note when uh, when contrasting with the UK uh, regime, where the court in the UK is involved from the very beginning, as you note. So the, the first court hearing uh, in the UK, if I understand correctly, that's done uh, in camera or in private. And the judge has the chance to ask questions about the proposed agreement. Uh, the, the parties can then address those questions before there is a public hearing on whether the agreement should be approved. And I think this touches on an issue that is coming up now in in Canada, which is the extent to which the court approval process should be held in private and the extent to which any documents produced or put on the court record in that process should be made confidential. So do you think that we will see in-camera orders or uh, perhaps sealing orders being granted um, at the court approval stage in Canada? And if not, why do you think it's important that the court approval, that the court hearing to approve the remediation agreement is public? Well, as as you know, I mean, you know, uh, sealing order, confidentiality order, in-camera orders are, are the exception. The right way to do it is to have a procedural process in place with the court to explain to the court what will be going on, what is happening, what is be what will be discussed, to sensitize the court to all all the process that was followed 
before. You know, all the negotiation with the prosecutor uh, is covered by settlement privilege. You want to maintain that privilege, but you want the judge to understand what the parties went through. So I believe that portion needs to be done in camera. It's not the approval of, of, the, of the agreement. It's just the explanation around the process, what was followed, what was done. Here's what we got. Now, the agreement itself and the review of the agreement and the approval of the agreement clearly is, must be public. And, and, I, and I can't see a court deciding of a remediation agreement in camera. I mean, of the remediation agreement itself. You know, and, and appoint a monitor in camera without people knowing, without without people knowing how the charges are settled, how the charges are decided, or or would be stayed. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's clearly it it has to be done in in public. However, you have to again keep this balancing between the preservation of settlement privilege and the process. Now, if you explain to the court the process that was followed in camera, you are preserving the settlement discussions. You have an agreement. The agreement is presented in public for approval. All that process needs to be public so that the court will, the court record will, will, uh, uh, will contain all those representations made during that process. And again, um, I think your question was, uh, why is it, is it important? Well, it's important because even if the court is to refuse at the end of the day the approval, the only thing that will be public is the agreement you had, you had reached with the prosecutor and why it's in public interest and why it should be approved. All the process in the middle, all the process that led to that agreement will remain confidential as it should be. And Elsa, to go back to, to the decision rendered uh, in November of 2022, in the in the case of Ultra Forensic Electronic, that's essentially what the the, the judgment is saying. Uh, Justice David is saying that, as a general practice, the hearing on the approval of a remediation agreement must take place in a public forum. However, it does not mean that some portion of the hearing cannot be subject to a sealing order or even be in camera. So. That's a, it's a, that's confirmed also by, by the little jurisprudence that we have right now in Canada on the, on this point. Yeah, and, and just to clarify uh, for listeners' benefit, Charles Antoine, the case that you just referenced is the ultra forensic uh, electronic case that was heard in November by the Quebec Superior Court. And I think a partic- just to add a particularly interesting comment in that decision as well um, is that some aspects heard in that court approval stage could be subject to a sealing order, particularly where they may affect the right or the the constitutional right of individuals to a fair trial if those individuals are involved or named or identified in the process. Yeah, yeah. and you you can have some portion of the agreement or some documents that are, you know, redacted in in the court record in order to preserve uh, a fair trial of individuals who may be charged in relation with what the company, sure. Uh, but there's a difference between having some portion redacted uh, and a complete uh, uh, in-camera hearing. 
So given everything that we've talked about and, and your experience looking at thinking about remediation agreements, I mean, do you think these are tools that are going to become more often used in Canada? And and how do you think the practice is going to evolve around using them looking looking into your crystal ball? Uh, my crystal ball, my crystal ball is, is guided by what's going on in other jurisdictions. So it's, I think it's easy to predict. If the tool works well, and there are still some fine tuning to do, but if the tool works well, it will be certainly for public companies. Uh, it will be a, a very, uh, interesting and important tool to avoid conviction, to to show compliance, to uh, upheld the compliance program existing, and to promote compliance, which is certainly in the interest of of, of every public company. So yes, I, I and and, I, and of course, given although there there will never be any guarantee that you will get a remediation agreement, no one will tell you it's for sure you will get one. But given that the RCMP is since they got the first one with SNC, is kind of advertising the the uh, remediation agreement as a tool to in order to promote self-disclosure. I think that what is requested, what they, what they are asking us to do, is come forward. We'll treat you fairly. We'll treat we'll treat you uh, 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 correctly, and and you will you you will be able to continue on your journey uh, and, and leave the past behind. I, I think this is clearly a promising tool for public companies and and for boards who uh, want to be compliant and promote compliance. It's also going to be interesting to see how the regime that is still pretty young evolve in the coming year. For example, are we going to add some additional offenses that can be uh, eligible to a remediation agreement? In Canada, the Canadian government announced uh, earlier in 2022 uh, that they were launching um, they were launching consultation to to modify maybe the competition act will they consider adding uh, offenses under the competition act eligible termination agreement uh, all these considerations are uh, interesting element that uh, will be uh, that we're going to have to to look at in the future and Normally, an antitrust offense are a big chunk of offenses that corporations are facing. So it's uh, it's kind of odd that they're not included uh, under the Canadian regime. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, we often end these conversations with a look forward, but oftentimes that just leads to an invitation to come back and tell us, whether you were right about what you predicted in the future. And I think we'll probably have to do that sometime ahead of now. But um, for now, thank you guys both so much. This has been extremely enlightening for, for us and for listeners. So really appreciate it. Thanks for making time for us. Pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com slash disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.